So today we are um, resuming um, our sermon series that we've been in for the past couple of months, the sermon series, I Am Jesus. Uh, we had a couple of weeks off there with Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday last week. But we're resuming today the, ser- the sermon series. And if you remember, we've looked at the, the seven I Am statements of Jesus. And now we're looking at the seven signs, uh, as John calls them in his gospel. All of this series has been based out of the gospel of John. Um, And so today we come to the fifth sign that John gives us, and this is Jesus walking on water. When I was was a kid or a high school student um, in in the UK, two of my favorite subjects, which I was also horrible at, were physics and geography. I I loved these subjects, and I I was fascinated by their their, uh, content, what they studied, and I would... I would work really hard in these classes, and I never got above a B. Bs and Cs were all I got in these classes. But I loved them. I found them fascinating. And I think it's because I was, and still am, fascinated by, by our world, by our universe, and, and how, it, how it is ordered and how it functions. And I, was, I would always be amazed by the incredible design of an intelligent creator that was so obvious in the creation as we look around it, that, you know, the precision in nature, the complexity. And for me, it was, you know, these, these subjects, I always pointed to the glory of God, to how amazing God's creation is. And, you know, the interesting thing is that God is the creator, right? So he's not beholden to the natural say, laws of physics, or to geographical location. God's actually above and beyond those things. And that's one of the things that we're going to look at this morning in, in this, uh, uh, this text here, is how Jesus walking on water is just one more sign of who he really is and the power that he has. So let's jump into the text here. And the first thing I want you to remember, though, is that this, this event takes place right after the feeding of the 5,000. And that was the last sign that we looked at a few weeks ago, actually. So it's the same day that this has happened. And if you remember, uh, that was where we were before Easter. And Jesus had fed a crowd of probably what would have been more like fifteen to 20,000 people, if you include the uh, the women and children on top of the 5,000. And he fed them with two fishes and five small loaves. And now it's evening time, and John's account doesn't tell us this, but we know from Matthew and Mark's account of the same event that Jesus has gone off by himself up a mountainside to pray. So Jesus has gone off by himself to pray. And you know, it's interesting to think about the reality of that day, of everything that went, went on that day. Jesus and his disciples, they mo- would most likely have been exhausted. I mean, think about if, you, have you, if you've ever hosted, say, a Thanksgiving and you've had all your guests and friends over. Remember those days when we could do that? But you've had a bunch of people over and you've been the host. So you've been doing a lot of the cooking and all that. And at the end of the day, you're just beat. You're exhausted, right? You just kind of sink into the couch, right, at the end of the day. Well, Jesus and the disciples, they've just catered for fifteen to 20,000 people. They provided food for them all. 
and it's had to be served, and then they've, they've collected the leftovers. And on top of that, Jesus would have been teaching for a lot of that time, and I'm sure he was doing some healings as well. And it's the end of the day, and they're tired, and Jesus is tired. Why? Because he's human. What does Jesus do? Well, he doesn't get a nice glass of red and a bit of Netflix. No, he finds time to be alone and get with God. End of a long day. What does Jesus do? Time alone with God. And you know, most of us after that long day, we would probably opt for the red wine and Netflix, right? But Jesus, he knows what will actually be the most life-giving thing he can do after a long day, and that is to spend time with God. Spend time with his Father. And when you think about it, if God is the source of all life, and he is, then what could be more life-giving than spending time with the source of all life? It's a no-brainer, isn't it? It's going to give you the most life, the most energy, the most refreshment. You ever done one of those uh, personality tests? You know, you've got things like Myers-Briggs and, you know, they, they sort of figure out if you're an extrovert or an introvert and all those kind of things. And, and most people tend to know if they're an extrovert or an introvert, right? An extrovert gains energy from, from people. I'm an extrovert, but I also have a... a a fairly high level of introversion. I'm, I need my alone time as well. And, you know, if I had to guess, I would say that Jesus was probably an extrovert, but with a high level of introversion as well. And actually, there's a name for those people, believe it or not. They're called ambiverts. Ambiverts. If you have a high level of both, you're, you're an ambivert. And, you know, Jesus, he loved people. He was very comfortable in large crowds and social gatherings, but he also knew what he needed to recharge and to be refreshed. And it was alone time with God. You see, if we think about it, ultimately the source of Jesus' power while on earth was his prayer life and his relationship to the Father. Jesus, his healings, his exorcisms, his miracles, his teaching was all fueled by his prayer life and his perfect obedience to the Father. That's what Jesus lived to do, to be in the perfect will of the Father. And if that's what's necessary for God to use Jesus powerfully, why should it be any different for us? If you want to see God work powerfully in your life and you're saying, God, please use me to accomplish your purposes. If you want to see God move in power in our church, in our neighborhoods, if you want to see him work powerfully in the surrounding areas, in our families, in our churches, in our friends and our colleagues' lives, then the place to begin is your prayer life and your relationship and obedience to God. Because if either of those is lacking or sadly, perhaps virtually non-existent, then the chances are that you're not going to see God work in power in your life and among your sphere of influence the way you would like. Can God do it anyway? Of course. 
that your prayer life and your relationship to God is so, so crucial to walking in his kingdom. What I would encourage you is to take a leaf out of Jesus' book here. Find your own mountainside and get alone with God. Just you and him. Put your phone on silent, flip it over so you can't see the alerts and let him recharge and refresh you. So Jesus is alone, he's praying and he's instructed his disciples to go on ahead of him in a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. And verse 17 tells us, by now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. Now, there's something I want you to pick up on here that's really easy to miss. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. This is what I want you to hear here. Where Jesus is not, there is darkness. Where Jesus is not, there is darkness. It's why Matthew in his gospel quotes Isaiah 9 saying, The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. So without Jesus in your life, whether you realize it or not, you are walking in darkness and living in the shadow of death. And I think we'd all agree right now, there's a lot of darkness in this world right now, isn't there? There's a lot of darkness in this country right now. And it's because more and more people are trying to live their lives without Jesus. They're like boats sailing in the ocean without Jesus in the boat with them. And what this leads to is verse 18. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. That can be applied to our own lives because it gives us a picture of what can happen when we try to sail through life without Jesus. But the disciples, though, This wouldn't necessarily have been something that spooked the disciples, being out at night on stormy seas. Because first of all, stormy waters, they weren't uncommon, still are not, for the Sea of Galilee. And let's not forget that a number of the disciples are what? Professional uh, professional fishermen. They were used to sailing on all kinds of waters and to fishing at night. And so they probably weren't spooked by that, but they were spooked by something. Verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on water, and they were frightened. So the disciples, they're about halfway across the Sea of Galilee in stormy waters, and they see Jesus walking on water, and naturally, that freaks them out. In fact, in Mark's gospel, it tells us that they thought they were seeing a ghost. And if you remember from last week, I mentioned that there were times when the disciples were terrified by Jesus' manifestation of power because whether they realized it or not, they were encountering and experiencing the power of the living God. And that is an awesome thing to behold. And this is actually what Jesus confirms in verse 20. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. It is I. Don't be afraid. 
And actually, in the Greek, that it is I is these two words, ego, me," which translated literally is I am. I am. Jesus is saying, I am. Does that sound familiar? Let me take us all the way back to the book of Exodus, chapter 3 of Exodus. And the setting is that, that God has appeared to Moses in the burning bush and he's instructing Moses to go to Pharaoh to free the Israelites from the Egyptian slavery. And Moses, in his, in his own way, is trying to politely decline this commission from God. Listen to verses 13 and 14. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, What is his name? Then what shall I tell? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. So God identifies himself as I am. And here, Jesus too is saying, I am. Jesus is declaring that he is the one and same God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. But this time, God is not speaking through fire, but through water. Only God could have had such control and authority over the forces of nature. You see, we're used to living in a world that has laws. Right? There are the laws of nature, the laws of physics, the laws of mathematics, the laws of chemistry, the laws of biology, even despite what they tell you today. And this is how God designed and created our world and the universe to function. God is the divine lawgiver. He's the divine lawgiver that set creation in motion. And he did it through Christ. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. For in him, that's Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Christ is the one who holds everything together. The reason anything exists, the reason you and I exist is because of God in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus holds everything together. But because God is the creator, as I mentioned earlier, that also puts him above and beyond the creation. The creator is not the creation. Beethoven is not the Moonlight Sonata. No, God, he stands, while he's with us in the trenches, he also stands over and above it. This is what I was talking about last week when I mentioned transcendence and imminence. We have a transcendent God, but a God who's also with us and involved in our lives. But because of this, because God is not bound or restricted by the laws that he has instituted for his creation, it shouldn't be any surprise that if Jesus really is God, he would be able to transcend the laws of nature, of physics, and walk on water. That shouldn't be a surprise to us. That's exactly something God should be able to do. And in fact, this is the very nature of miracles. Miracles 
transcend and defy the laws of nature. That's why miracles are so amazing. Why they're so special. They're not supposed to be possible. But with God, say it with me, all things are possible. I don't know if you've ever tried to walk on water. Anybody, anybody tried that? Just as an experiment? You say, well, hey, Jesus did it. I'm going to try it. Right? There are people, actually, who've, who've kind of gone through the science and, and figured out if it would be possible. And, and shockingly, they've found it's not possible. But the only way it might be possible, first of all, would be if you were running. But, and I'll get back to that in a moment, the reason we can't walk on water it's because we are bound by the laws of nature, by the law of gravity. And because of our weight and our size, the force of gravity overcomes the surface tension of the water, and that's why we sink if we try to walk on water. But if you tried to walk on water, it's estimated that, first of all, you'd have to run. And you'd have to be running about three times as fast as Usain Bolt runs on dry land, which would mean you would have to be running about 70 miles an hour. And of course, that's not humanly possible. And neither is walking on water. It's not possible unless you're God. So Jesus, he reassures his disciples. He says, I am. Do not be afraid. Or actually, even more literal in the Greek, I am, stop being afraid. Stop being afraid, I am. And this is, this is another lesson that we can apply to our lives today. Stop being afraid. Stop walking in fear, because Jesus is Lord. That means he's Lord over all creation, including viruses, and he's Lord over your lives. You know, our lives are in his hands. And there's no better place to be than in God's hands. Listen to Psalm 139, verse 16. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. He knows your story. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow. He knows how your story ends and how it continues. He knows every hair on your head. And Jesus, he is our protector and our defender. And in those difficult and stormy seasons of our life, he is the anchor of our souls. You will never drown as long as you cling to Jesus. But to cling to Jesus, you must first embrace Jesus. And that's exactly what the disciples do here. Verse 21. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. So they, they willingly received Jesus into their boat. My question is, are we willing to receive Jesus the way the disciples did in the boat? And actually, the, the disciples, they give us a, a simple and clear model here, which is this. One, they were in distress. Two, they recognized their need. And three, they received Jesus into their boat. And you know what? The same applies 
to the rest of us, to, to humanity. Number one, without Jesus, we are all in distress. Because whether we realize it or not, we're walking in darkness, we're sinful, we are dead in our sins, Scripture tells us, and we are separated from God. Secondly, what we need to recognize is that Jesus is what we need to reconcile us to God. To take away the power of sin over our lives. And thirdly then, we invite and receive Jesus into our hearts and we cross over from darkness to light. And I want to encourage you, especially if there's somebody watching at home, if you've not done that yet, do it. Today is the day of your salvation. Make that step from darkness into light. One last thing I want to point out here. The whole story, the whole text here is kind of dominated by the the miracle of Jesus walking on water, right? That's what we focus on here. But actually, do you realize there's not just one miracle in this account? There's two. Listen to verse 21 again. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. They were in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, about three to four miles out when Jesus met them, and yet immediately the boat reached the shore. Jesus, again, is demonstrating his power over time and space and over nature. It's yet another sign that points to who Jesus truly is. God. So as we wrap up here, I, I just I, I want to leave you a little a picture, a kind of a a painting, if you like, a picture that came to me as I was preparing this sermon. And if we think of life as a journey across an ocean, if you think of your life like that, it's a journey across an ocean, and we each have a sailboat of our own, and it's a boat designed to carry us through calm waters and stormy waters through still seas and rough seas. And those are the seasons of your life. If you've lived any amount of time, you'll realize there are calm seasons and there are rough seasons in your life, right? And we're in this boat that has been designed for us to to carry us through life. And the thing is, though, that these boats were never designed just for one person. They're meant to have a co-pilot Because without that co-pilot, you will always be sailing in darkness and you'll be headed towards darkness. But when you willingly take Jesus into the boat, like the disciples did, the journey becomes clear and the light will guide you in all truth and righteousness. Let me leave you with the powerful words of the Apostle John from the first chapter of his gospel. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray.